Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, examiners of creative expression and impression alike. Today we're talking broadly about autobiographical comedy, narrowly about Kevin Allison's risk project of curating confessional monologues with the man himself. I'm Mark Linton Meyer, risk averse, yet not risk averse. I'm Erica Spires, and I'd love to tell you about the time I tried to pick a tick off a cat's balls, but I just don't feel like the story has any legs. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I'm a little worried that my most embarrassing moments to confess are still ahead of me. <laughs> That's great. Welcome, Kevin. <laughs> Hello, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you. Folks might know Kevin if they watched MTV's The State, or usually what I have to introduce you, like, who's The State? Oh, you know, like the people on Reno 911 and Wet Hot American Summer. And Kevin is another one of those. Uh -huh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> 11 of us. In fact, we're doing a little bit of a reunion for San Francisco Sketch Fest this year, which has to be virtual. But the state is still good friends and always in touch about the possibility of future projects. So we'll see. You'll get that, that, that. call for the, the CBS series any day now. It's happening. <laughs> That's right. I did check over your IMDb and everything in your biography. Did you ever do Viva Variety, though? In any capacity. I was never on an episode of Viva Variety. There was a lot of tension about that show. Oh. In the oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The group kind of had like the Beatles, you know, where the last year, year and a half was very, very tense. And the existence of Viva Variety was the culmination of all the tensions. So by the time Reno 911 came around, we were all friends again and all that sort of thing. So no, I was never involved in Viva Variety. I went through a really rough patch after the state broke up. I would imagine. People ask, you know, if you could go back and change anything. What I would change are my latter 20s, early 30s, how I handled us having lost our television career. Because I really kind of settled into a period where fear was really driving the car for me. I was kind of overcome by stage fright. I became more and more like isolationist, you know, not as good at staying in touch. And it wasn't until 12 years after the state broke up, I really got my mojo back. And that's when I created Risk. But there were many years there where I was upset and hurt and resentful and kind of nursing wounds from the state had been an incredibly competitive group of very, very, you know, 11 people kind of pushing and shoving to get who's going to get the more attention, who's going to get the roles, who's going to get in with the producers and get more power over everyone else. So it was a very contentious group. It was kind of a dysfunctional family that way. Everyone loved each other and were the best of friends, but were always battling one another. So 
when it was all done, I was kind of hurt and upset and kind of didn't handle myself the way I know I would now. What I would tell my younger self is to just do everything in your power to keep getting up on stage, keep working with other people, and keep producing stuff that you're putting out we're at a very different place now with YouTube and podcasts and yada yada. So it's it's much easier to say today to keep producing content that you're putting out to a wider public as well. So those are my main regrets of how I handled after the state broke up. Yeah, but I guess a lot of that led you into doing what you're doing now, right? Because you have some of those stories, I imagine that helped to fuel some of what risk is. Yeah, I remember talking to Mark Marin about this, actually, and him saying, oh, my God, yeah, but a lot of us have the decade we regret. You know what I mean? And he had a good point. Like, I call that time my time in the belly of the whale. If you look at, like, the classic archetypical story structure, that was my time in the wilderness. And, yeah, a lot of crazy stuff happened (laughs) during those years. Survival jobs, all sorts of crazy adventures in the underbelly of New York. And it's so funny, so much of going off on my own on little adventures did really, in fact, inform so much of the storytelling that I do today. Yeah, let's use that as a nice segue here. I had come up with this originally topic as autobiographical comedy, but you clarified for me, no, no, it doesn't have to be funny. It's often funny. Obviously, you're coming from a place of comedy background, but that's not the point. The point is to be honest, to be confessional. Can we kind of start with that connection? I still didn't feel the need to retitle the episode. I still feel like it's still a form of comedy, but it is transcended comedy. It doesn't even have to be funny. It's so cutting edge and awesome. Yeah, I can tell you exactly what happened with how Risk came to be. After the state broke up, I spent years thinking, well, maybe I'm a one-man sketch comedy group. Maybe I should just get on stage and play characters, sometimes two characters at once, like Lily Tomlin or something like that, or sometimes just completely surreal bits like Andy Kaufman. And so I was getting up on stage occasionally and doing those, but not often enough, and somehow I just wasn't breaking through. And in 2008, I created, like, I think my third solo show of characters, and it was called F Up. It was literally about five characters who had effed up their careers. (laughs) (laughs) So you could see right there that I was starting to become autobiographical, but through fictional characters. I did the show in San Francisco at San Francisco Sketch Fest, and Michael Ian Black, who was another member of the state, came to see it. And afterwards, he was just brutally honest with me. He decided to not pull any punches. We were walking away from the theater, and he was like, Kev, I gotta tell you, I really think you would do better just dropping the act. Just cut it with the characters. You've got such a crazy, fascinating life. I really felt like everyone in that audience would have been much more invested if you had just gotten up on stage and just started telling true stories about yourself. And I said, oh, my God, 
I feel like I've heard that in my head before. I feel like my super ego has told me to do that, but that just feels too risky. And Michael said, risky? That's a great thing for it to be. Hold on to that word, because if you get up on stage and you feel like, whoa, I'm outside my comfort zone here, I'm really revealing something, I'm risking opening up to these people, they're going to start opening up to you. So I said, okay, I went home on the flight home from San Francisco to New York. I was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I've never been to a storytelling show before, never been to the moth, don't really know about this whole storytelling scene, but I've heard of it. And I know a friend who does have a storytelling show at the UCB Theater in Chelsea. As soon as I get home, I'm going to contact her and say, hey, can I be on your storytelling show? And her show was all stories that had to do with people's sex lives. So I said, what's the riskiest story I can think of to tell? It would be... The first time I tried prostituting myself when I was 23 years old. And I set to work composing this story and didn't really know anything about storytelling at that time. You know, a lot of people now that I coach people on how to tell stories, they make the same mistakes I did, which is I went right into personal essay mode, very literary, very clever. Here's a joke. Here's a joke. Trying to time things out. But. I was so terrified the day of that I was like, I can't do this. And I called the producer of the show and I said, I can't do this. And she said, why? I said, oh, it just feels too risky talking about prostituting myself. You know, I'm, people won't be able to relate and uh, I don't know. And she said, listen, this is great news because I do this show. It's all people telling stories about their sex life. There's usually one person who freaks out. And says, I can't do this. It's too risky. And then if I can convince them to do it anyway, that's the story that's going to knock it out of the park. Because it was so risky. So she convinced me. And I told the story that night. And I kept facing the fear. I kept coming to these parts where I was like, Ooh, boy, this part they're going to think is so gay. And <laughs> this part, I sound like such a Midwestern cornball. And ooh. This part is just too kinky. They'll think I'm a pervert, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I kept coming to those places and said those parts anyway and found the audience just continually leaning in more. There was an energy between us that I just was not used to on stage where I was like, whoa, I'm in conversation with this audience. I'm not just reciting memorized stuff, but... I'm really connecting with them and they're really listening. You know what I mean? So I, it was just so exciting to me that night that I left the UCB theater. I was walking down 8th Avenue away from that show. And I thought the whole idea of risk occurred to me during that walk. I was like, I've got to do something that forces me to get up on stage on a regular basis. I should create a show where I have to tell a story on a regular basis so that I'm forcing myself to get over stage fright and just keep appearing before audiences. But it should also be a podcast, which I was just then learning about, so that it's reaching a wider audience than, you know, a small room comedy. And I'll call it Risk. And everyone who tells a story on Risk 
doesn't matter if it's funny or terrifying or beautiful or whatever. They have to feel like they're kind of stepping outside their comfort zone and saying something in mixed company that they would ordinarily maybe just save for the therapist or their very closest friends so that it feels really risky to them. And that idea totally changed my life. And over time, what I began to learn was that unlike a stand-up comedian, when you're telling a true story, you don't have to think quite so mechanically about getting laughs. Like a stand-up comedian, like if you've watched the way that Jerry Seinfeld works his way through a routine, it's very kind of mathematical. It's very kind of, okay, there is that whole theory you should be getting a laugh every eight seconds in stand-up. And I originally went into doing Risk with that thought of, oh my gosh, how many words is eight seconds? And is this funny? Or And what I eventually just started learning from seeing how I was in conversation with the audience is that people were often laughing at stuff that I hadn't even originally intended them to laugh at and then not laughing at stuff that I had and just kind of over time feeling it out and realizing, you know, the real goal is to be as honest as you can. It's just a part of my personality that funniness is usually going to come out. Like that story about prostituting myself for the first time, ultimately, that's a sad story. It's a story about a kid who is desperate to pay the rent and is doing something he really does not want <laughs> to be doing. And yet it is hilarious because there's just so much that happens in it that's just where you're just like, oh, my God, this kid. <laughs> well, and also it makes it sadder that you said prostituting myself the first time. Yeah. That's part of the story. (laughs) Well, that's really interesting because I sat down with Mike Berbiglia's director, Seth Barish, and I shared that story with him once. It was a coaching session. So he was just like, I just want to hear various of your stories. So I shared the prostituting myself with him story. And he said, that was hilarious, but I feel like there's a sadness there that makes me curious if there's more to that story. And I was like, well, yeah, I did successfully prostitute myself the very next night. And that was a very sad story. And he was like, that's great. You can have funny stories and then start to feel out whether or not if you started to try to expand on them, they might lead to sad stories that you can let be totally sad. Although, to be honest, I never have told that second story. I mean, I, I definitely could. You have and now. I, I told it to some <laughs> friends recently around a campfire, literally around a campfire. And I realized, oh my gosh, I really should turn that one into a full-fledged risk story as well. And sure enough, my friends were laughing around the campfire at this very sad, successful, because the first one is a comedy of errors. And this one, I realized, I guess like my whole life is a comedy of errors, you know? So no matter how sad it gets, you're going to be laughing at parts. Well, you mentioned Jerry Seinfeld and comedy, and I happen to have a quote of Seinfeld's up. I guess it's a, a Seinfeld script that I had pulled up getting ready for this as we were preparing. This is from the episode called The Comeback, where someone has said to George Costanza, 
the ocean called the running out of shrimp, right? Because he's eating all the shrimp at a meeting. So George is telling the story to Jerry. And he said, so George tells Jerry, but then I said to him, oh yeah, well, the jerk store called and they're running out of you. And Jerry said, really, that's great. You said that to him? And George says, well, actually, I thought it up on the way over here. And Jerry said, oh, that's not quite the same. And I guess I have to ask, that first time you told your story, did you have any urge using you have you understand comedy did you have did you have to fight the urge not to embellish to get a laugh and over time do you have now any sort of bullshit detector when you think maybe someone participating in risk maybe isn't quite giving you the full confessional not because they're ashamed of something but maybe because they're going for a joke and they're not being totally honest in order to get the laugh yeah i was watching a kevin hart concert i don't remember the name of it the name of the special it was one that was in front of like eighty thousand people like i get uncomfortable when someone attempts stand up in a place where it's like a football stadium or something i think all of these forms just work a little bit better in at least slightly more intimate space than that but anyway he was telling a story and it veered very clearly from true into embellishment. And I was trying to ascertain, is it because I'm so used to telling true stories that I'm disappointed now in how blatantly embellished this is becoming? There are certain people who are really masters of the comedic embellishment that makes you go, wait, really? Or, no? and you know, like David Sedaris is a perfect example of that because, you know, the New Yorker, where he publishes most of his essays, for years they were the gold standard of fact checking. And so he they used to always have these problems with him where he, he would say, he would be telling a personal essay where it's very, very true. And then he would just state something where they were like, wait a minute. <laughs> well, that was almost magical realism of human <laughs> foibles, right? I mean, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. No one really read that thinking that he was. Right. So it's not quite the same thing as that little tweak that you think is just going to go from being kind of the ho-hum moment in your story that's a bridge to saying, well, this is a, actually now a funny thing that happens. That's the bridge. Yeah. Matthew Dix talks. He's a storyteller and a storytelling teacher. He talks about the four lies of storytelling, compression, omission, reordering when things happened, these various things. It's kind of like the whole thing, the famous Supreme Court case, you know, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. That's the same with embellishments in storytelling, where the mind, memory, does not serve accuracy. It, memory serves narrative, and narrative is all based on emotion. So we can't help but be making things up to some extent when we're recalling stories. It can be very interesting to stop in the middle of a story and admit, I think this is what happened next. But maybe, you know, because we spend a lot of time when we sit down with our therapist talking about that kind of stuff, like, well, I've always remembered it as happening this way, but did it? And that can be interesting to include in the story itself. But yes, there are moments where someone quotes someone, someone has a character saying something that sounds so much like movie dialogue, or something happens that is so coincidental or like movie-esque seeming, 
that we will have to stop and say, do we really trust this person? And we'll really poke and prod at people when they're preparing stories for risk if we sense anything like that. There have been a couple of stories that have gone on risk and caused lots of discussion among fans where some fans will start trying to you know, be detectives and look up certain things, see if they can find any inaccuracies. And it's difficult to do because we usually encourage that storytellers are changing locations, names of businesses, names of characters and stuff like that anyway. So when it comes to a part in the story where you're like, wait, did your dad really react that ridiculously? What's the deal with that? That's where we step in and start asking questions. And sometimes they will admit, oh, no, I'm embellishing there. And then we'll say, well, what really happened? And then that will often be more interesting. So it really is gray area. I definitely have found myself telling stories where I'm like, it's very funny. To tell these stories about, for example, when I was in grade school, things that happened when I was in grade school in the seventh grade or whatnot, and then to run them by the other characters in the story, my old friends from grade school, and have them be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh-huh. I was looking up while you were talking what the, the four lies were because you only named three of them. And I was wondering what. So the fourth one is the lie of assumption when you can't remember a detail, but you fill it in. I was predicting that it was going to be something along the lines of sort of the lie of mental causation. Like a lot of your stories, it's not just this happened, this happened. It's I was thinking this and so I did blah. Whereas I feel like usually when we try to give explanations for exactly why we did something, we're making it up. You don't know. That's not the way, you know, unless you are just, in fact, even if you are extremely self-conscious in making a decision, what we identify as our motives are usually not our actual motives. And often, who the hell knows? Like, so, you know, when I was trying to think about what would my risk story be, I kind of came up with, here's the thing I did. What were the things leading up to that? And it became a whole psychoanalysis thing. Like, why in the hell would that have come out of me? That's what made it interesting is it's not the kind of thing I would normally do. Is that uh, problematic for you and the people that you coach that of actually knowing not just what the progression of events is, but what the progression of sort of mental causes is? That, I think, is what makes stories so interesting. You know, like, we'll give people certain prompts. Like, we will say, first of all, just think of moments in your life when you were most emotionally moved or, you know, most emotionally invested in something. A time that you were totally surprised and blindsided. A time you were terrified. A time you were absolutely thrilled. But also, another famous prompt that we use is, think of a time when you did something where you were the bad guy or your screw-up kind of really had repercussions. And it really is interesting to walk back through these events because you do tend to have to try to figure out well, here's why I think I made this first decision, and here's how I interpreted what ended up happening. And you can't help but kind of be like, and so what I take away from that is, so it all does have a sort of narrative psychology or narrative therapy sort of effect for people as well of trying to get to the bottom of why did I react the way I reacted? And I always find that really interesting to allow the storyteller to kind of like get into the murky, messy stuff and acknowledge it, you know, directly. 
Like, for example, there's a story I tell on Risk about a prank I pulled in high school, and it's so obscene and weird that I spend a little bit of the story saying, now you're probably wondering why I did that. And all I can think is I was 16 years old and 16 year olds do really crazy things. You know, like it really is curious, you know, so I'm working with someone right now who this is not a funny story at all. She woke up from a blackout while having sex with a stranger and felt totally compelled to get to know this stranger and do it again, even though her gut was telling her, this guy probably slipped you a roofie is how you got into this situation. And so it's fascinating, you know, we find this in the news all the time when someone who has been in a situation maybe a little bit like that and everyone's like, why on earth did you get back in touch with that person or do this or that? And it's actually very interesting when people have been through like bizarre, even traumatic or just unexpected situations, they might react in ways that don't seem to make logical sense or that you would first guess. And so that is very interesting to kind of dig into. One thing that always fascinates me about storytelling is there are only certain people who feel that they can share their most difficult or more interesting stories. I wonder how many incredible stories are out there that just can never be told because they're afraid they're going to hurt somebody's feelings or then, you know, they die before they ever tell it. Especially now, I wonder if you've had any of this happen in, in your storytelling recently with like, 23 and me. I can't tell you how many surprises I have heard from friends about their families and who they thought they were. And but the question then becomes, can you talk about it? Who are you going to hurt by talking? Yeah. The number one, like we have our classics of our, the ones that got away. These incredible stories where I'm like, that would have been an all-time classic. And the number one reason that the plug gets pulled on those stories is that a family member gets in touch with the storyteller and is like, you cannot have that going on that podcast. You know, a lot of people use fake names when they do the show. But even when you use a fake name, like your family members might have feelings about your voice being out there sharing that. So yeah, that is tricky territory too. And then there are certain personality types that are just not extroverted to get it out. We deal with a lot of having to recognize certain things like PTSD or ADHD or Asperger's, you know, like there was a fella who told a story on risk or we wanted him to tell a story on risk once about sailing around the world, all the way around the world in a little boat and being off the coast of Indonesia and then having a stroke and not being able to move, being immobile. And his boat is boarded by pirates. And one of the pirates has a little kid who's like, shouldn't we at least save his life, dad? So the pirates bring him to shore and et cetera, et cetera. But this guy could not include emotion, especially some men just don't have access to their emotions. And so it was like, how is this story so 
boring. <laughs> How is this incredible story coming out so dry? You know what I mean? So. Just have Siri tell it. Just to just type it in. Exactly. And when it comes to PTSD, what we will often do is one of the signs of PTSD is when a person does something similar to that where they're very detached from what they're talking about. But you can kind of tell that, okay, they know how serious this was, what happened to them, but there's something weird going on when they get around the main event. And so what we'll often do is we'll say, hey, we work on some stories for years. So we really recommend you keep digging into this. We certainly recommend you tell this story to a professional, to a therapist or in a group counseling sort of situation and give it some time, process it and come back to us because we feel like you might not be quite ready to go on stage with it. Two years later, we'll hear back from that person. They'll be like, Oh my God, thank God that you told me to hold on to it because now I'm ready, you know, and, and good that's for you and not exploiting that. And I think a yeah. lot of people probably would exploit that. Right, right, right. I almost expected the problem to be the opposite of maybe what Erica was getting at. This whole idea that if you think you're one in a million, there are already in New York. <laughs> and people thinking that they've had this really unique experience and they can't wait to tell you and workshop it. And you're like, yeah, we've, we might have heard this one. And, you know, that's an experience I had in therapy. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, this is what you're telling me is probably not the first time I've heard this today, let alone <laughs> in my career. So yes. well, are that, you turning people away with like, well, yeah, that's more a trope than an actual story or that's, yep, yeah, everyone has that happen to the them. The police said yes. that the call was coming from inside the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we just did our Halloween episode. Believe me, like it is incredible how many, what do you call it, paranormal experiences are the same story. But no, one of the ways that I became the Pied Piper of encouraging people to share their stories on risk is that I'm very, very kinky. You know, I have a whole lifestyle within the BDSM community and even teach kink classes sometimes. And so I found that by being able to be a friendly, appealing, Midwestern polite guy telling these stories about these, what to some people are extremely bizarre paraphilias or you know, just very unusual seeming sexual activity. It really helps people to feel comfortable like, oh, well, if he can talk about that, then I can share about this crazy thing that happened to me. So we have people write in all the time, listeners saying, I thought I was a total freak. In fact, I was even kind of suicidal. But now I hear that there's a lot of people with very different tastes and experiences and yada, yada. So that's very helpful. But yes, you're right. We do. In fact... <laughs> the one I was just telling you about, the gal who blacked out and woke up and she was with someone she didn't know who it was. My story coach who first read the pitch was like, mm, we've heard this so many times. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. This one is a little different because of the nuances of her relationship with this guy afterwards, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, you do end up hearing a lot of the same kind of story. So we want to always be pushing. And another thing that's fascinating to me, what this just blows my mind is that there are people who will be friends of mine or acquaintances of mine. 
or people who have been listening to the show for years, and they hear me just desperately calling for pitches on every single episode for 11 years. And then there will come a day where they'll be like, well, I guess that time that I overdosed on heroin and drove my car off a bridge while having sex with, uh, you know, like, and, and you're I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that, that that would be. It never occurred to you. You know, like people often just don't have access to whether or not they're ready to tell something or whether something would be appropriate to tell. So it is funny that like someone who might have experienced something very similar to something that's been on the show a bunch of times might think that they have something very special. But someone who has something very special might have some block of having it ever occurred to them that they could share that. Now, instead of reading ads on your show, have you thought of just having in every show a plant story that, you know, it sounds like a good story, but at the end it turns to a product endorsement that I was saved from driving off the cliff by scope? Uh, I'll okay. tell you, we have thought of that. We have brainstormed <laughs> on that because advertising, it's so, like, it, we depend on it. But you have to figure out ways to keep it interesting you know there was a time there where i was turning the stamps.com theme into a song or trying to make sketches out of adam and eve ads but oftentimes <laughs> oftentimes the advertisers are not thrilled with it you know what i mean so oh your numbers gosh. are not good enough for you to screw around with our copy that way <laughs> right right. get a right, hundred thousand right. more <laughs> listeners then you can do it right right well I'm naturally curious about your experience with the printed story and your approach to writing and how much this is similar or different, or do you, I should know more. I should have come in a little more prepared on this because I did so much listening to your program and, and reading about, you know, your work that you do now. Do you write? Do you find it to be a different process? So I have pretty bad ADHD. In fact, I'm currently seeing if I can get medicated for it. My entire life, I have always felt, oh, I should be writing more. Whether it be journaling or prescribed writing, like, okay, I'm going to write a this or that kind of thing. And I've just never been disciplined about doing it on a very regular basis. What I learned over the years with storytelling, preparing stories to share on risk, is that it usually helps to compose it first as spoken word. What I'll normally do is I'll turn on GarageBand and I'll start just trying to tell the story and I'll leave myself lots of leeway for pausing and going back. You know, I mean, I've got a lot of I'm very used to using GarageBand, so I can almost just like edit it on the fly as I'm going. But the way that it's coming out of me first is me speaking, me actually using my voice and pretending I'm conversing with someone because that helps keep me from getting too clever or falling into literary syntax or getting too far afield from it. Because I think that there is a tendency with essaying to allow yourself, or at least for, with me, to kind of allow myself to go down little interesting mental rabbit holes that might not be so 
you have a sense when you're telling a person a story to their face, when you see their eyes start to glaze over or when you fear that you might be about to lose them because you're kind of digressing. So you have this feel of, okay, they're with me, they're with me. And the reason they're with me is because I'm keeping the emotional through line going, you know? So I find it easiest to first work on a story with GarageBand rather than ever typing anything out. Then I listen back and I will start transcribing it and I'll transcribe the parts I like and then be editing it as I go so that there will be a script eventually of what I consider a final draft for presenting in front of an audience. And then I'll record that and just listen back to it a few times. And then once I'm actually in front of the audience, just try to remember as best I can, but not have memorized it word for word so that it still sounds kind of natural. And there will be points where I'll even say, oh my God, I forgot where I was. You know what I mean? But that makes it even more conversational and makes the audience feel like, oh, this is really happening in real time. It sounds like from having listened to Risk that those stories all have this commitment or this contract with the audience that there is going to be narrative in a way that what you just described is whether you're being an essayist or something else that you don't really have to do that. And you can, but a classic short story definitely has that narrative content in a, the beginning, middle and end and someone who goes on a journey. And a David Sidaris, to come to him again, it might and it might not. It just depends on what he's writing about. Risk seems like it always does. Yeah. And, and not that that person can't go off on a tangent or go into explaining something, but we have this promise, like almost like a magic trick. Like there is going to be this some kind of reveal of where we were being brought to, or that at least we were being brought on a place. Just speaking as someone who does right people who are learning to write their big problem is that they don't finish their stories whereas it sounds like in your line of work who are, are telling these stories their problem is they're not telling their stories well they'll get through it and they'll tell it but either it's not honest or it's not interesting or it's not well told or it's not this or it's not that or not a number of things and workshopping means actually reworking it or doing that examination to tell it better it really strikes me as a very different thing so i guess i'm not totally surprised that writing isn't something that you would necessarily do, though I still, once you get yourself those meds, I want to see what you put on the page because I'm, that's going to be great. Well, a good example is I did write a story for Amazon. This was last year. It was called Two Henrys, and it was about my relationship with my best friend from the first grade to the eighth grade, and all the things that happened to us in those years. And it was really interesting because they wanted it to be at least an hour long if it was to be made into an audio book. So that was fascinating because what I found myself doing is taking a lot of bits that had been in other stories I'd shared over the years, and then some were just bits that I'd only shared in therapy, and looking for the through line, trying to take a relationship and see where were the big shifts and what was the journey of that relationship. 
And so, yeah, that was fascinating for me. But also, it's very challenging because when you're writing just on the page, you don't have the audience laughing. You don't see those eyes reacting. So sometimes I'll be like, oh, my God, this is brilliant. And then they'll be like, can we just cut this paragraph? You know what I mean? Like, So that was a fascinating experience. And it did convince me that I need to be doing more of that, you know. I always have this philosophy that because the state, the state used to be very arrogant when we were in college at NYU, when we first started out and we were like, there's only sketch comedy, stand up comedy sucks, improv is for losers, you know, like, and then I was very, very moved to see that members of the group grew out of that in later years and started realizing, no, 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 it's a really good idea to try improv, to try different kinds of writing that might not have ever occurred to you before, because it's all working different muscles in the creative soul, and it all kinds of ends up informing each other. The first time I did a long-form story on Risk, a long-form radio-style story, it was about a half-hour-long story, because normally, you know, they're shorter than that. Again, I was talking to Mark Marin about it, and I said, it was interesting because I found myself being able to get even more intimate when I was just telling a story into a microphone in my apartment than I think I might have been able to on stage. And Mark said, so keep telling those kinds of stories into a microphone in your apartment because what you're going to find is that that's going to start bleeding into your ability to be more intimate on stage in front of people. Like all these things kind of add up and start helping one another out. No, that makes sense. I mean, just psychologically, like they say that if you study in a similar environment to where you're going to take the test, then you're going to do better on the test, right? So yeah, I hadn't thought of that in terms of of storytelling. And in fact, what a wonderful tool that you just shared with us. Like, so I'm an actor and I also find that I'm a better auditory learner a lot of times with scripts than I, like, I will always record all of my lines, just not necessarily with any emotion, but just to have it. And I'll listen back and I'll try to say it with it. And I find that the way those synapses fire is a bit better for me than reading it and trying to memorize it from a written form. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like if I am working with a text, like for example, I'm learning how to do hypnosis right now because just it's something that (laughs) fascinates me. But in order to learn how to do something like that, you have to pay very close attention to what the textbooks are saying. So I've found that recording myself reading the textbook so that it's not just visuals running through my brain of visuals of words, but I'm actually saying it out loud. And then if I want to, I can listen to it again later. You know, I do find that uh, I think I'm more of an audio person as well. So it sounds like the appeal of this storytelling form, at least when you started, was it didn't seem like you needed to know the history and craft of storytelling, that it's something everybody has experiences. And as long as you're feeling passionate about it, as long as you can kind of return to that, you know, it's something that you can make up a method of doing it on your own. But clearly, the fact that you're coaching now, I mean, was that all just a matter of like the lessons that you and the folks that you were talking to learned in doing this? Or did you then go back and investigate the traditions of storytelling and are are bringing that couple thousand years of grown wisdom to bear? Or do you feel like, no, 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 that's great that that's out there, but this is a homegrown project? Oh, my goodness gracious. 
like when it finally occurred to me to be doing risk, I looked back and realized, oh, okay, I spent my entire years of fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade making sketches on a Radio Shack tape recorder and listening to comedy records where Monty Python or whatever were doing audio bits. And, oh, I told stories in front of giant congregations because I was raised extremely Catholic and my parents wanted me to become a priest and I was kind of being groomed for giving homilies. And looking back at the way that the state had come to understand a typical like five beat structure of a story had almost just kind of instinctually found our way to that. So when I finally put together Risk, I realized I had been learning all along how to do various things and was finally consciously putting them together. So very shortly after we started Risk, Michelle Walson and I, who was the producer of the show back then, were like, we should start teaching classes. Because here's the thing. I always encourage people to tell a story First, like I just said before, like kind of just spewing it out into a recorder or to a friend, right? Not thinking consciously about Joseph Campbell or anything like that. <laughs> and then once you've got that first draft, then going back and being like, wait a minute, did it have to start here? And why is this the ending? Starting to think in those terms. So I think that having read books like Story by Robert McKee or, you know, listening to Joseph Campbell way back in the day, a lot of that stuff was already bouncing around in my head. And when Michelle and I started teaching classes, then, you know, they say you never learn more than when you start teaching. And the reason for that is because you're trying to start being conscious of the way you do what you do. You're trying to start to name and identify, here's why that worked, and here's why this didn't work. Now we have the Story Studio, my school, where we teach all kinds of workshops, even corporate workshops for people to learn how to talk like human beings at the office. <laughs> and the short answer is, when I first started Risk, I thought, oh, this is like folk music in 1960. Anyone can grab a guitar. Most people are not going to be Bob Dylan, right? And it is to a certain extent. I mean, the moth is a place where anyone can go and put their name in a hat and try telling a story for the first time. We all have life experiences and oral storytelling really is something we do every day. But there is a craft to telling a story well. The number one thing that you'll notice about Risk Stories, there's actually on SoundCloud, you can find a one-hour masterclass that I put out there called What Every Risk Storyteller Should Know. And it's all about being scenic. It's all about finding those moments in their, in your story where something is definitely happening and in a cinematic way, the way a novelist would do, you are showing rather than telling actual dialogue being exchanged, actual physical activity happening. You're showing moment by moment the sights and sounds and smells and tastes and bodily sensations and thoughts going through the head and all that so that we feel like, oh, we're really witnessing a scene happening. And that is by far and away the hardest pill for people to swallow. That is the 
skill in storytelling that people have to be reminded of over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, including myself. I still have drafts of stories where I'm like, okay, I've philosophized and editorialized and given a general overview of this psychological thing that I was doing for years. How can I show it in dramatic action happening? I remember when I first started taking improv classes, they said, here's the thing. You're going to learn the top 10 principles of improv on day one, and it's going to take you two years to learn them. Because intellectually, you get stuff like yes and, you know what I mean? Like you immediately understand the principles, but it takes you about two years of like getting up on your feet and doing them till they start to become like muscle memory. And presumably it's like anything else that these are rules in a sense, but they can be broken, but only when you know what you're doing. Picasso only got away with being drawing Cubist paintings because he also was a classically trained artist who could draw the human form, right? And so it's always done with a purpose when you choose to not follow these guidelines. Otherwise, it would be too cookie cutter and you wouldn't have any excitement of varying off the path of the one way of doing it. Yes, that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, there are all sorts of guidelines that we give to people that we then, you know, when the right story comes around, we're just like, all right, wait a minute. Wouldn't it be really fun if we just did the thing you're not supposed to do here? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to actually limit myself because... (laughs) As an actor, teacher, storyteller, I'm just, I feel like I'm getting a masterclass here anyway. So I don't want to take advantage of our wonderful guest. And you've kept me captivated. And I wish other people (laughs) could see your face while they're hearing this. But like, I guess that's one little thing. I noticed that you're very, very animated in your facial expressions and and your gestures. And I know that there are those components of your show that sometimes they're taped and they get put out in a video format. But Do you find that that's actually helpful as well for when you're doing the podcast, when it's just auditory, how expressive you are with your body and your face that you can hear it? It's so funny because when I have had to do professional voiceover things, (laughs) (laughs) I will have to be like, all right, you're just going to have to get used to the fact that I'm going to be like making all sorts of expressions and using my hands and all that kind of thing. Because, yeah, I feel that using the whole body can be heard. Somehow using the whole body comes across in the audio presentation. You know, it's it's the way that, you know, voiceover artists will often be told, why don't you do that again, but smile while you're saying it. And And that makes a difference somehow. It just kicks in a certain different timbre or tone to your voice. So, yeah, I've noticed, you know, one of the things when I'm recording a story for someone, people will always say, wow, your eyes. I was just following your eyes the whole time. And I'm very conscious of that. And I know that Ira Glass, when he records people for This American Life, he literally conducts. He literally is like using his hands to like draw more out of them, telling them to stop with that, you know, like, like a oh, conductor. Yeah. So yeah, I think it is interesting the extent to which there's that stuff behind the scenes that you might not even know is going on, but that the actor is kind of using their whole body to affect the presentation. One of the things I would say to storytellers is 
a lot of people have a hard time hearing their own voice at first via recordings, but you got to get over that. You know, you got to learn to just get used to not liking certain aspects of your voice and maybe tweaking, you know, like when I first did risk Michelle Walson, it was maybe the third time we had done a live show and she pulled me aside. She was the producer of the show back then. And she said, I got to tell you, you told that story a little bit like you were talking to a room full of second graders. She was like, you were putting so much emphasis on everything and talking too slowly and all these sorts of things. And if I didn't trust and love and respect her point of view, that might have been hurtful for me. But instead, it was like, oh, okay, let me be conscious of speaking to the audience a little bit more like I'm speaking up into intelligence rather than down. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And just make little adjustments happen because of that. So I don't know. It worked for Trump talking down. You know, you got a lot of mileage out of that. I was just surprised that you came to this interview. <laughs> Erica didn't point this out, but that you came to this interview in full body Incredible Hulk makeup. I I, I was very surprised by that, but I, I guess that's just your thing. You can hear it through the mic. <laughs> oh my god! Well, I, I'm looking at myself on the camera here on the Zoom and realizing, oh my gosh, this is the first time I'm doing a Zoom where I don't look utterly exhausted. You know, because of the political situation, where it's like you can clearly see a little bit that I've, I'm calming down a little bit now. Oh, my God. After, <laughs> after the election, in case anyone is confused oh, yeah. about the date yep, here. Yep. Yeah. Do you have anything besides the podcast to plug before we let you go? Well, everyone can find me. My social media, it's uh, at the Kevin Allison on Twitter and Instagram. And then risk socials are always at risk show. But the podcast itself can be found wherever podcasts are. And the podcast website is risk-show.com. And look up the Story Studio if you're interested in any sort of training. That's thestorystudio.org. And then I do personal training. <laughs> personal, wait, personal storytelling training? Or, yes, yes or, of course. <laughs> yeah. He's Kevin Allison like is my personal trainer. <laughs> <laughs> That's at kevinallison.com. He wears his Hulk makeup to the personal training sessions. <laughs> it makes me feel strong. Uh, all right. Thanks so much. So long. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.